0: Today we're going to begin a series in the book of Genesis and it will take us quite a while to get through this book and we will not be able to go to the depth of detail that many people would like but we're going to hit some very key and important issues as we talk about Genesis and the unlocking of the Bible. This has been on my heart to begin this series for several months now. Um, We were kind of unable to do that because of the COVID-19 virus. We had other issues with peacemakers. We were doing that series at the beginning of the year. But I believe in God's timing, and now is the right time for us to dig into the book of Genesis. This is a very, very important topic and a very important book because it sets the tone for the rest of the word of God. So I encourage you to take out your Bible, take out your outline. I hope that you've printed it. I want you to follow along. I'll try not to get too heady or too detailed, but I think it's important for us to grasp and understand uh, Genesis and the introduction of what this book is all about. Look at Genesis chapter 1, if you would. It's easy to find. It's the first page in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 2. Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Well, as we get started on your outline, you'll see some fast facts. We do this every time that we begin a study of a book. We try to get the context in the background. And so some fast facts quickly to understand The framework of this book, Titles of Genesis, is the first thing. Titles of Genesis. The Hebrew title of the book is the initial word here translated in the beginning. The English title was derived from the Greek translation, and it's the key word of the book, and it is Genesis, the very word we have in our Bibles here in America and England and other English-speaking parts of the world. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, this is the book of the Genesis of heaven and earth. So you get the sense of what this book is all about. Genesis literally means the beginnings. The author of this book is Moses. Scripture and tradition support the ideas of Moses being the author, not only of Genesis, but of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's believed by most Jewish scholars and church historians for many years that Moses was the author of these five books and obviously the book of Genesis. Who better than Moses to write this book? He was educated in the finest schools in Egypt because he was adopted into Pharaoh's family. He probably learned literary skills in those great schools as he was educated. He met with God on numerous occasions, so God gave him the information directly to write. Genesis provides the framework for the Exodus out of Egypt. And we know in in Exodus that God met with Moses up on Mount Sinai and gave him the Ten Commandments and other laws as well. And so why wouldn't he give him the information to the creation story? critical scholars however deny the mosaic scholarship or authorship of both genesis and the rest of the pentateuch some think it was ezra the priest that was the writer of these books and so the theologians have vacillated from time to time but the modern view is the documentary view and we don't have time to go into detail of that if you want a detailed study you know look up the documentary view j e p d which are the four source books that they think uh, were accumulated to uh, write the book of Genesis. But the date, the date was very interesting. I spent a lot of time looking and scholars are very divided about when Moses lived and when this book was written. You'll see on the notes I put unknown. Some believe Moses lived approximately from 1550 to 1200 before the common era. Rabbinical scholars, the Jewish scholars, believed Moses lived from 1391 to 1271. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, said he, was, uh, he lived in 1592, around that period. The Exodus was most likely in 1445, before the Common Era. So I know it's a lot of dates and probably doesn't mean much to you, but I wanted to get the point across that people are not completely sure when Moses lived and when this book was written. The purpose of the book, you'll see the purpose and the theme are very similar, but the purpose of this book is to not just uh, set us up for Genesis, but really the rest of the Old Testament. The purpose of the book of Genesis in your notes is to show God's divine choosing of Israel, to be his chosen people and to establish an ancestry of people through which Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would redeem mankind and reign over them for eternity. Notice those two purposes. It was to show how God chose a group of people to be his own. And then he wanted to establish an ancestry. He wanted to establish people, generations going forward that would eventually give rise to Jesus Christ being the Messiah who will ultimately reign over this world for all of eternity and to redeem mankind by his grace. The theme is this, the divine choice of Israel from, by God out of all the nations of the world to be set apart by God for his service and the keeping of his laws while dwelling in the land promised to them by covenant. We're going to see in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, we're going to see that Abraham would be the father of a great nation, but also a covenant would be made that they would have their own Land and God lays out the description of where that land will be and the boundaries of it. So it's a divine choice. Again, God choosing them to be set apart, to serve him and to be a reflection of who God is, the true God, Jehovah Yahweh, to the nations around them. The theme of the book of Genesis that we just talked about Uh, tells us about the covenants. But now we move on to the key verse in Genesis 3.15, where he says, I will put hatred between you and the woman, speaking of Satan who had just deceived Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. Satan's offspring will be the demons, the the false angels, those that are the fallen ones. And her offspring will be Cain and, and the succession line of people. It says that Christ will bruise his head, but Satan will bruise his heel by allowing Jesus to be crucified. It's a picture of Jesus dying on the cross and Satan thinking that he gets the victory. But of course, we know that that's not true. So we see the picture of redemption, the gospel in Genesis 3.15. That word bruise in that verse means to break, to break in pieces, to crush, and then we look at how is Christ seen in the book of Genesis. That's important for us when we look at a book of the Bible to see the scarlet thread of redemption that flows through the books of the Bible. And how is Christ recognized? And so in the book of Genesis, he is seen as the redeemer. He's seen as the deliverer through Joseph and his life. In a way, he was a type of Christ because uh, he rose up and brought Israel into Egypt to provide for the food that they needed in the midst of a famine and kept Israel going. So Christ is viewed as the redeemer in Genesis 3.15 and the deliverer through Joseph. You see the outline there on your notes, the preface of the redemption story. You see the perfect creation, paradise. Adam and Eve were born in a perfect environment and they would have lived forever but unfortunately they got involved in sin and that's where we come to the fall of humanity the perversion of God's paradise you see the consequences of sin and the punishment in those verses you see the destruction due to sin and how God purifies the earth and then we will go in detail when we get to Genesis 11:27 and the rest of the book when we talk about the patriarchal path of redemption. And we'll be actually doing character studies of Abraham and Lot and other people as we go through that part of the book. But I wanna get right up front in this sermon series and say that as we go through this, as we think of the first chapter about creation, I just wanna make it clear, I am not a scientist. I did well in science and I enjoy it, but I am no expert and so I defer to others. I'm not a historian. We see some of these things throughout the book of Genesis that refers to specific events in history. And again, I defer to those who are more scholarly and understand history and the context of which these stories took place. I'm a student of theology. I'm here to uh, extrapolate or open up the word of God and make it easy to understand, and so I'm going to raise more questions through this study than I'm going to give answers. I cannot speak in detail about the science behind creationism or creationism and all the evidence for the facts supporting creation science, but there's certainly evidence for those things, but I can steer you to all kinds of sources like answers that's a great place to go to get information about creation science. We can go to Institute for Creation Research.org out of Dallas, Texas. You could uh, look at Quad City Creation Science Association, QCCSA.com to give you more information about the local chapter here of creation scientists and Helmut Welk and his ministry. I cannot speak to every issue in detail that Genesis and especially the creation story brings to us, but we're going to look at these. And if you have questions, please contact me and I'll be glad to either steer you to resources or try to answer your questions. So here we go as we begin this study. And I hope you have your notes open. Why study? Why do we study Genesis 1 through 11? Why is it so important? Well, number one, these chapters need to be understood by literal interpretation. These chapters need to be understood by literal interpretation. The faulty thinking and challenges from critical scholars of the Bible and scientists do not come close to dissuading us from what God said. It's interesting, a number of years ago, there was an apologist named Francis Schaefer, and I loved to read his books. When I was working on my graduate degree in, in apologetics, I, Got to go hear him speak in Maryland one time and several times at my college. And it's interesting that he said that if he was on an airplane sitting next to someone who did not know Christ as Savior, he would spend one hour with him. And in that hour, he would spend 55 minutes talking to him about how God created the universe, how God created mankind, how he put them in a beautiful paradise-type place, And remind them that they were created in the image of God. And then he would talk the last five minutes about the gospel and how sin separated them from God. And how God came down and redeemed man by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. You see, you can't really understand Christianity until you understand the creation story and how God views man. That we're his special creation. That we have the imprint of God in our hearts, and our lives, and our souls. And so that's why Genesis is so important. It says Genesis 1-1, God created the heaven and the earth and he gave us purpose, he gave us destiny, he gave us a reason of why we live in this time in history. So understanding and believing the doctrine of creation in the book of Genesis is foundational and accepting, and I want you to listen carefully, that the Holy Bible is to be taken seriously when it speaks to the real world. It has to be taken seriously. We have to believe that this is authoritative. This is literally what God said as we look through the Genesis account of creation. Second of all, we wanna see the inerrancy of scripture and how it depends on this story being true. That's why we study Genesis one through 11 these aren't fictional stories with good morals and lessons that we can take away from it, like a fairy tale. This is talking about the inerrancy, the authoritative truth of God's word. So the inerrancy of scripture depends on us taking Genesis 1 through 11 literally. The Bible is the verbal, plenary, inspired, inerrant word of God. We're going to unpack those, unpack those terms so that you understand them. You've probably heard them before. Maybe it's been a long time, but it's important for us to understand when we use that word inerrancy, what are we talking about? Well, first of all, I said verbal plenary. What does that mean? Well, verbal inspiration means that every word of scripture is God-given. The idea is that every single word in the Bible and where it's placed is true, and it's there for a purpose. There are no exceptions, We're talking about every word in the original manuscripts. The word plenary means fully authoritative. It means that all parts of the Bible are divinely authoritative and equal in that authority with one another. This includes such things as the genealogies in the Old Testament. All parts of the Bible are from divine origin. And you can look that up in blueletterbible.org, for example, and other places, to understand what verbal plenary means. Luke 16, 17 speaks to this. It says, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And then we see another part of that phrase: inspired. What does inspired mean? It literally means in the Greek language, God breathed, God breathing out. And probably a verse that you're very familiar with in 2 Timothy 3:16. The best verse in all the Bible that describes the inspiration of scripture. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Different than the Quran, who uh, the Quran was uh, words that were given to Muhammad by Gabriel. And then written down by Zayd, his slave boy, on Leaves and papyrus and stone. The word Quran literally means recitation. But the Bible is not like that. God gave these things to these 40 different writers. And they used their literary style. And it wasn't like a secretary writing down dictation. They were prompted by the Holy Spirit to use their personality to write these things down. But the word of God is inspired. Verbal, plenary, inspired, and lastly, inerrant. Inerrant, without error in the original manuscripts. Matthew 5.18 says, For truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, this is going to freak you out when I make this statement, but the Bible that we have in our hands is 98 plus percent, just like the original manuscripts. And so we say that the original manuscripts are complete. The entire revelation of God, authoritative and inerrant. Well, why do we not have 100%? It's because of, over time, scribal errors that have occurred. And God has preserved his word through time, through dictators who wanted to burn it and destroy it. So we have a Bible in our hands that's authoritative, that's inerrant, that is inspired. It's important for all of us because to understand this and understand that the origins of the book of Genesis is foundational to the rest of the Bible. If Genesis chapter one and two don't tell us the truth, then why should we believe everything else in the Bible? It begs the question. If it says in the New Testament that the Creator is our Redeemer, but God is not the creator, then maybe he's not the redeemer either. If it tells us in 2 Peter that God himself will bring about a mis- an instantaneous destruction of the world in just a moment, it says by fire. How can we believe that if we believe that he in six days brought about creation and he's able to do that? The same God that can destroy his creation is the one who created it. What you believe about Genesis, specifically Genesis chapters 1 through 3, determines how you look at the rest of the pages of the Bible. If these stories are merely fictional, then how is the rest of the Bible authoritative and inerrant? How are we supposed to believe it's the Word of God? Were the world and its life as we know it evolved by chance without cause? Or was it created by God? There's an immense implication between those two positions as we think of evolution and modern science and how they view natural laws without miracles or a supernatural God with intelligent design created the world as we know it. It's interesting to me as we think of this point that Christ quoted repeatedly from the Old Testament and referred to it as scripture As he did through his ministry and sharing the message of the kingdom of God, he would repeatedly point back to the Old Testament, even back to Genesis chapter two, where he talked about the bringing of two people together, a man and a woman in marriage. They leave and they cleave And other places that he quoted. And because of his resurrection, God stamped his approval on the message that Jesus gave all those three years of ministry. It says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 31, for example, Jesus said this, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Pointing back to the Old Testament being scripture. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, but I say. Jesus builds on the foundation of scripture to add more revelation to it as the very Son of God. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus confirming many accounts in the Old Testament, such as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the death of Lot's wife, the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, the calling of Moses, manna given in the wilderness, the prophet Jonah, and on and on it goes. And then we see the accuracy of history is consistent throughout the Bible starting with Genesis, that's number three, on why we should study Genesis one through 11. The accuracy of history is consistent throughout the Bible starting with Genesis. Liberal scholars believe that Genesis is merely a legend, a myth, a fable. It's not to be taken literally as I said before. But we could take uh, good teaching from it. We can build morals from it. We can have lessons that would be applicable to us, even if it's not literal. The truth is, Genesis is history and not legend. And the question is, how can we reconcile Jesus and other New Testament writers quoting Genesis of Scripture if we can't take it literally? It's easy to say, but not all of the Bible can be taken literally, and it's true. We have allegory and revelation. We have poetry In Psalms, for example, we have hyperbole in some of the parables and all these things. And they're there for a divine purpose. But when it comes to the Genesis account, we don't see those different literary styles. We think it's a literal teaching. Our library has a great movie that I was going to show April, I think it was the 17th, the Friday or Saturday after Easter. And we were going to have Helmet Welcome, and we're going to watch Genesis's History by Del Tackett. Who uh, did the series called The Truth Project? And some of you are familiar with that. And uh, at some point, we're going to show that later this year and invite Helmut Welk to come in and, and summarize and, and, and bring application to that. So there's a great way to look at that if you want to check out the video in our library Genesis is History. Number four, the story of creation is consistent with Scripture and science. This is the wedge that Satan is using so strongly right now to put between believers and science. They're trying to say that if you are a believer in Christ and a believer in the word of God, how does that fit with science? Is science compatible with the Bible? And they bring doubts because of the different theories that they have of how the world was created. Now while creation science does not answer every question concerning creation, It has the best probability of accuracy because it's based on God's word. And it looks at the creation story through the lens of God's word. And it looks at it from God's perspective and you see how creative he is and how much of science from its inception was based upon a biblical worldview. You know, when I was in graduate school, I had Norman Geisler and he came and did a, a... a one-week class on creation versus evolution. And I remember writing a paper in that class about how the founders of many of the fields of science came from a Christian perspective. They were born-again Christians, and they looked at things through the lens of, of God and how he viewed things. And now we've moved away from that and moved away from the idea of the supernatural and the miraculous and our science dealings. The issue for some is that science today, which by the way has been politicized in many ways, is incompatible with religion. And all miracles can be explained away at some point because of science. So we see this battle between the supernatural world and the material world or the natural world where everything can be explained. We see the creation is mentioned many times throughout the Bible. I looked up one document, and it was 17 pages, if I were to print it out, of all the places in the Bible where it speaks to the fact that God is our creator. So not only in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3 as it talks about the creation story, but it's throughout the entire Bible referring back to that great event. Here's one example in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone, you've made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you." Another sample of scripture to reiterate the creation story, and God is the creator. In Amos 5.8 it says, "'He who made the Pleiades and Orion," talking about the stars and formations of stars, and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day and the night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. God is the creator. Number five, under why we need to study Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the problems in believing the other so-called biblical theories of creation. And we're not going to take time today, maybe we will in a later sermon, but just to mention a few of those. One is progressive creationism. Some say that's the same as the day-age theory or the old earth theory. Bernard Ram, who is one of my favorite writers, talking about hermeneutics, the interpretation of scriptures, he has a different view than I do. He buys into progressive creationism. He defined it as seeking a harmony of the geological record and the days of Genesis by saying that This happened over stages, that each day was a long period of time, not six literal days. Bernard Ram said, we believe that the fundamental pattern of creation is progressive creation. It took thousands and thousands and maybe millions of years to occur. We think of the gap theory. According to the gap theory, there's a very long space between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2 that between those two verses, another world existed and Satan had a lot of control and God had to destroy that world. And then we get to verse two of Genesis one, he begins to rebuild the earth for the second time. That's the gap theory. And then there's all kinds of shades of the theistic evolution that God used evolution over billions of years to create the world and bring about eventually the very first man, the first human, and his name was given Adam. And then there's the intelligent design theory, that as people study science, they see order in a system, and they say that there's something out there that has put this all together, but they come to the conclusion that they don't know who that God is. And so they stop there, and some other people who believe in intelligent design begin to explore Religion, and many of them, come to faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the key. One major problem with all these theories. They lack biblical support. Number one, and it puts death before sin when scripture describes death as the consequence for sin. Think about it. Adam and Eve, they were the first two created in Genesis. They were supposed to live forever. And when they sinned, God brought upon them, as one of the curses, that they would die, that they would have mortal physical bodies. So how do you explain evolution, where many things have to die, the survival of the fittest to get us to the point of where Adam is the first man? What about these other theories, where death occurs before the first man is alive? Something for you to think about as you think of these different theories. Well, how does all this apply practically to my life and your life? Well, here's the applications. Number one, look these. Look at these in your notes. (coughs) Excuse me. We must get Genesis one through eleven right if we're going to be able to trust the rest of the Bible. We must get Genesis one through eleven right if we're going to be able to trust the rest of the Bible. If If those first chapters of Genesis are just, um, you know, allegory or not to be taken literally, how do we trust the rest of Scripture? Number two, we must know in our hearts after we study that science and God's word are perfectly compatible. And that's why it's so important. Maybe you need to take a trip to the Creation Museum. Go to the Ark Encounter. And they're very honest about the things that they conjecture and they possibly could fit the story. But they give you the facts of what they know based on science. Number three, we must accept that people are going to strongly disagree with us, believers and non-believers alike. It's amazing that this could become a very divisive issue. This can become a very contentious issue with some people. And number four, we must not be ashamed to share what we believe. We must not be silenced by the opposition. The school that I graduated from, Liberty University, shortly after I graduated, the Southern Association of of Schools, the accrediting arm of of the NEA, looked into Liberty University's teachings on uh, evolution and creationism. And they took away the accreditation for elementary teachers for a while because they thought that they were emphasizing creationism over evolution when actually they were teaching them side by side, preparing teachers to be able to teach in a public school. That's some of the opposition that people face when they uh, cross the line. I can think of, of a man that we had here speak a number of years ago, Dr. Jackson. And he had been at two Christian schools, Christian universities and he shared his views on creation and in both those schools he was terminated because of his literal view of creation. So this is a contentious issue. We need to know what we're talking about and we need not to be ashamed to share what we believe. The key thought here as we finish today, the self existent God chose to reveal himself to us through his creation and his plan of redemption for mankind whom he created. The self existent God. What does that mean? I looked it up on dictionary.com. It means existing independent of any cause. And then they wrote this in there. God. What it really means is that God is the uncaused cause. Logically speaking. Think about it. There has to be, if you keep going back in time and thinking in your mind, that even if you believed in some kind of evolution, there has to be Something out there that was the first cause that was eternal, that was not created in order for uh, this world to come into being and exist. And so it says, in the beginning God, Genesis assumes right from the get-go that God exists. He's self-existent. He wants to reveal himself through his creation as we see in Psalm 19 and his plan of redemption for mankind whom he created. Here's some concluding thoughts. You know, I don't believe this is an issue of doctrine that we can have different views on. This is a bedrock issue that determines if the Bible, if all 66 books of the Bible are verbally, plenarily inspired, inerrant words from God. This is different from eschatology. We can have different views of the end times, when the rapture is going to occur, when, if the rapture is going to occur at all. We can agree to disagree on that. We can agree to disagree on if tongues and healing are normative in the church today. This is different on maybe how we view the Sabbath in the New Testament times versus the Old Testament. But this is not one of those issues as a believer. You can be consistent in believing the authority and inspiration of God and hold a different view than that of literal creation. There's only two options if you really think about it. That if you believe that this is just a material world, that man doesn't have a soul, that he evolved from the slime and primordial soup over time, that a frog, um, that a fish became a frog and grew a tail and came up on the land and, you know, began the stages as we see in the evolutionary cycle to come to a Homo sapien to be a man at some point after billions of years, but there's no soul. There's no accountability at the end of life. There's no God to help you in this life. There's not any real purpose or plan because we're made up of random molecules at an unusual time in history. And we have to try to figure out in our own ways to define our reason for being here. Or you can believe the biblical worldview that God created Adam and Eve, that he breathed into Adam his soul, and that we are made in the very image of God, that we are his special creation, more important than the galaxies than the universe, universe out there, than than the constellation of stars, than the Grand Canyon, God is the special creation that he focuses on the most because we are made like him. And of course, if you have that hope, then you know that we have the opportunity to have eternal life after this life, that we have a soul, that we will give an account for what we did in this life, and that God will bless us if we've trusted in Christ as Savior to be with him. Those are really the two options that we have before us, and I hope you think about this as you think about and we talk about in the next couple weeks this creation story from Genesis chapter 1. As we prepare to go today, I want to encourage you to ponder these questions this week. Number one, how have you doubted the accuracy of the creation story? There's so many different theories out there, even from a Christian perspective. And maybe you've doubted. Maybe you haven't been sure that it's the literal, truthful story, six 24-hour days. Think about that. Number two, will you take time to study to find answers to your doubts? And lastly, are you confident that faith in God's word and science are compatible? I hope and pray as we begin this study and you begin to think about it this week, that you'll dig deep not only into God's word, but also other things outside of God's word that brings evidence to the fact that Genesis is is very importantly the big part of God's word. It's the, it's the avenue through which all of the word of God comes as he begins the story and points us to the authoritative truth found in his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, helping us today to be able to look into the background of the book of Genesis. Help us to see the framework that I hopefully gave as we begin this study and to see the book of Genesis through the lens of you, Lord, through your eyes and its purpose, and its themes, and its meaning. And Lord, help us if we wrestle and struggle with how faith and science intersect, that maybe this would cause people to look deeper into these truths for themselves. And help us as we go through this study to uh, just clearly understand what you've laid out in your word so we can better understand it and have more confidence in how we live our lives. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.